Hi, I'm Bushra Tafrato, and you're listening to Impraise of the Margin podcast, a space where I talk to researchers, scholars, and practitioners on the ideas that mobilize their work. Some of my research interests are on topics related to socio-spatial inequalities, the politics of space, and the practices of inclusion and exclusion. Today's guest, Dr. Esma Mihan, who's currently an Urban Citizen Fellow at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies in Social Sciences and Humanities, in collaboration with the Municipality of Amsterdam. She's holding a postdoctoral research fellowship position affiliated to Leiden Institute of Cultural Anthropology and Development Sociology and the Leiden Delft Erasmus Program for Port City Futures in South Holland. She's also a tutor and postdoctoral researcher at TU Delft in the Chair of Urban History and Theory at the Faculty of Architecture in the Built Environment. She worked in various geographical locations, including Tehran, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Istanbul, Kuala Lumpur, Torino, Berlin, Porto, and Detroit. And currently, we're collaborating with other researchers as a contribution to the Manifesto for the Just City book, an initiative launched by TU Delft. In the beginning of your scholarship, you wrote a lot about your city, Tehran, especially its public squares. You linked these spaces to the public and private binary practices, religion, the quality of life, and even revolutions. I want to know why public squares? Thank you, Bosha. I think that uh, it's a very nice question. And also you question about the beginning of my academic journey. I started from Tehran, my, my hometown, uh, to be able to describe the built environment associated with the social and very political situation that happened. At the same time, I tried to look to the city where I born rather than trying to explain everything with urban theories. I try to engage more with social theories, with political theories, and also with history a lot. So rather than going through one direction or seeking for a one particular theory, I try to become engaged with different perspectives. For me, it was a you know nice diving to a very large scholarship of the built environment and politics of space production. I really enjoyed of this journey because at the same time, I had ability to become engaged with the language and with the educational background that I had in the country because I did my bachelor and my master in Iran. So writing about the city outside of the country, I think it gave me a theoretical framework to be able to critically think and criticize the built environment. But at the same time, I could dive into the language. I could utilize the instruments that I didn't know that I have, you know, like the culture. We can engage more with the different political history of Iran. You mentioned the history of revolutions that took place in the country. I think that Iran is a very rare country that experienced two political revolutions, lots of coup d'etats during its contemporary history. I think that linking the modernization and urbanization project in Iran Mm -hmm. and also the lots of political and social changes and challenges that the country had, and also its geopolitical importance in the Middle East during the, you know, kind of contemporary history. So my my academic journey starts from Tehran, but mm-hmm. after all, I, I try to just acquire this uh, critical kind of apparatus, critical framework that I get from my hometown to be able to use it in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as you might know, generally I'm interested in the countries of the global south because I think that there are less heard voices 
uh, from these countries that we have in academia, especially in the Western and European societies. At the same time, I try to have a parallel comparative perspective uh, towards the cities of the global south and global north. But at the same time, I'm also critical about these vocabularies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that putting clear distinction between these countries because all of them have their particular history and we need to really theorize them within the country, with the voices that are coming from the country. I try to also expand the, the knowledge that I, I acquired to other countries because it was more exciting for me to do that, in, to see that how it works in other contexts, in other countries, in other continents. Did you experience any difficulties when you wanted to translate certain terms or practices that are in Tehran in your own language within a Western theoretical lens? That's a very nice question. And from the very start of this long journey, I know a very limited academic references that I used to know in the East that they are translated properly and distributed properly in the West. So I understand that there is a gap between the set of academic references, the politics of citations. When I decided to write in English about Iran, you know, usually I sit for the scholarly writings in English, usually from the scholars coming from the Anglo-Saxon and and coming from the European universities. And I missed the voices that are dominant inside the country, but it was very difficult to find the trace of these people, these voices that are coming from the country. There are very few references available from the very well-known and established academics in Iran. So I, I think there is a huge gap. At least I could see that in my research and also in my writing. At the same time, I was not very comfortable when I tried to compare different contexts and when I tried to analyze this country with the set of academic references from the West. I was thinking that, okay, sometimes it's true, but at the, but most of the time it's not describing the whole story. There were lots of phenomenon. I think there, there were lots of stories that I was not able to describe. I was not able to analyze. I think that there is a profound gap. In one of your recent research papers, you talked about decolonizing the public space and I want to know where does decolonization um, manifest in your writing? Do you link it to the essence and the origin of decolonial theory? Or do you just adopt the terminology of decoloniality and interpret it in your own way? Let me start this discussion from the research project that we had on Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Uh, so back to 2016 and 2017, we started a research project with the University of Sheffield in Kuala Lumpur, in metropolitan area of the Kuala Lumpur. So the idea was to be able to describe the public spaces in KL, as abbreviation of the Kuala Lumpur. We tried to map the social activities that happened in the urban spaces, uh, also with the help of the people that we know in academia from the Kuala Lumpur and from the Malay 
Malaysian academia, they helped us a lot in this research project. And also we try to go to the social media, to Twitter and Instagram to be able to find a way to describe the public spaces in the city and how the different religious and the, the ethnic groups, they are interacting in the public space. So that was the beginning of the journey. But I should say that the first result that we had, it was a complete and fruitful disappointment because we were not able to completely describe what's happening through the theoretical descriptions that we have before. We had this hypothesis that the public spaces in KL work as the spaces of encounter and social interaction. But uh, after uh, months of observation and going to the different public spaces, we had to conclude that nothing like that has happened. The multi-ethnic and multi-religious groups use the public space, but they were formed in other communities somewhere else. They were coming into the public space as a particular social objects, and they didn't interact in any way with others apart from the kind of conventional uh, or commercial interactions, like, for example, the seller, the service provider, or the customer. Rather than just going to the generalize the interaction in the public space, we try to be very specific. We try to go to the urban space and investigate the dating practices of the young heterosexual Malaysian Muslims in non-private spaces in Kuala Lumpur, the public and also the commercial spaces like malls, markets, and etc. By focusing on these particular young groups in the public space, we try to open the discussion and to formulate different criteria in the public space that are sometimes hidden, like the presence of the religion, like the social interaction between the groups that are not defined in the Western theoretical framework, considering the different sets of norms, sets of notions. For me, talking about decolonizing the public space. It's about the sets of norms that are hidden from the Western and the dominant sets of references. This perspective also helps to find different narratives to definition of the public space in different societies, in different contexts, to decolonize the urban theory. Going back to what you said about the whole research project, you talked about linking the digital space to the physical space in KL. I want to know what made you link social media to the physical space? It's a dominant uh, discussion that also I had during doing my PhD. For example, even nowadays, uh, when you want to talk about the social movements, you can't ignore the role of the social media. I mean that the virtual world, it's uh, very integrated with the built environment. Even when I try to go to the Occupy movement, even in the West, the role of the social media, it was it was quite dominant. And also in the, in the case of KL, when you want to talk about the young generation and how they use the public space, you should track that also as part of this interaction. It's a very strong medium to, to be able to see in Twitter, in Instagram, Facebook. I think we can't be ignorant about the role of the social media in the built environment. And also, uh, at the same time, it can be helpful to be able to find a way to digitalization of the narratives. When we try to find the, the people for our interviews, usually Usually we try to uh, to go for the people that were the graduate and undergraduate students. We try to start a conversation with them. Most of them had access to the social media. Most of them were quite active users. 
we found ourselves at a very safe place of maybe tracking them in social media and seeing their activities in social media maybe just help us to narrow down our, our surveys. At the same time, there are lots of factors that you can see at the social media. I mean, that you should be a very smart observer when you do so, because there are also lots of hidden factors and hidden stories that nobody tells but they exist and it's very influential. I think that the virtual world and the real world are interconnected and it should be a, a tool for us to be able to investigate more about the built environment. You mentioned various practices that are performed by different communities that dwell in KL. One of the elements you talked about is the link between the public space and religion. And you try to offer a new definition for, of the public space within the context of Kuala Lumpur and similar environments where the religion shapes people's behaviors and in some cases the overall organization of the public realm. Can you elaborate a bit on your research findings, especially tracing the history of the built environments and colonial pasts? Yeah, first we should understand exactly the colonial past, for example, about the case of KL. We should be able to understand the dominant religion groups. We should be able to understand the cultural and religious differences to be able to understand that how the citizens using the public space, for example, in the Malaysian context. At the same time, I would like to go to the notion of visibility and how this visibility or being visible or invisible described in the Western theoretical framework and how it's it's really different and how it has a different dimension in the major Islamic society like Kuala Lumpur. I think finding of these research projects allows us to question the theoretical usefulness of the Western notion of public space. Is it enough? There is a need to employ a different language and a different set of references to be able to analyze the spaces and, and potentially other non-Western cities. At the same time, I think it's just few initial steps that we can have towards decolonizing our thinking about that. But uh, we use the religion and, and also we use the Islam as one of the factors that are very influential. And we try to have this lens to be able to go for our case studies, which was a about the young Muslim Malaysian the, and heterosexual Muslim Malaysian that want to date in the public space and how the notion of visibility and invisibility in Islam affects these interactions in the public space. Yes, thank you. I was trying to link your approach and other scholars' work, especially Black scholars and scholars of color that connect history and equality and justice to governance when studying issues in post-colonies. For example, in my previous program, Academics recommended literature, which I've read thoroughly. However, the majority of it wasn't engaging. Uh, I understood the format of doing a policy analysis or elaborating policy recommendations. However, I don't necessarily agree with how it is done, the methodology of it, and some of what they called essential readings, which were mainly Western literature, disregarded the history, the narratives, and the overall complexity of these geographies it just never made sense to me. This kind of conundrum occupies a big part of my thinking and practice. Yeah, Portia, thank you, because it's exactly in line with what I think and what I try to distribute uh, in my works, in my writings, and I try to reflect more on that. I think history really helps us to understand the major events, the figures, the movements that shape this post-colonial history, this post-colonial tout, and also the theory. Also, I think that history is very strong medium 
for outlining this cultural, social, and also political context of post-colonialism. In my writings, and, and to have an example, I would like to go back to the BLM, to the Black Lives Matter movement uh, during the previous summer. And also me and, and the other colleagues in Leiden and Erasmus, uh, we had a chat as part of our research group in the Port City Futures group. We can reflect more on BLM in the Netherlands and also to be able to, to talk about the past, about the contested past. We worked on a short blog called Port City Heritage contested past, inclusive futures, and we discussed about how our own research practices relate to the systemic inequalities uh, within the different cities uh, in the Netherlands. And also we tried to go to the UK and try to find the example in the United Kingdom and how this contested and complex past and also these legacies of diversity and segregation and this colonial past impact our cities today. Recently, I've been in a very nice tour in Amsterdam, which was about the Black heritage. And for me, it was very striking because I saw that all of these voices can be interconnected, even between different countries. I think reflecting back even to the built environment of the past, even to the heritage as a tangible heritage in the society and talked about the colonial past and about the colonial heritage, I think it's it's also the, the part of the conversation that we should be able to find a way to put forward because for sure it's un uncomfortable but it's part of the society nowadays there are different uh, institutions ngos and group of activists that try to put forward these debates in different countries yes absolutely we should talk about this again when I hear uncomfortable conversation, I know who's getting uncomfortable listening to it. These discussions challenge white institutions, systems of erasure, and the history of oppression that still manifests itself in the built environment. I want to reflect a bit on what you said earlier on modern heritage and put it in the context of colonial past. We continue seeing activists removing colonial objects from the public space, statues of former colonizers, street names, and all of these colonial markers that are visible in the public space. And we cannot forget colonial architecture in post-colonies and museums in the West. Recently, Françoise Vergès, who's a decolonial feminist scholar, gave a presentation on decolonizing the museum, where she said, quote, in European museums, the object is the story. What does it mean to build museums in the 21st century? This very European architecture, space, time, and forms of display, end quote. In Berlin, protests took place against the Humboldt Forum amid its opening last year, and the coalition of cultural workers in, in the city are still organizing against this institution. Uh, so yes, it's important to question this modern heritage in the built environment. The realm of modern heritage is very critical, and you've written on this as well. Decolonial scholars and activists are calling for giving back the looted art, their heritage, and cultural objects. And linking this to what Françoise Vergès said, how can one celebrate their own heritage within white imperialist institutions? That's a very nice question, Bushra. And also, uh, I would like to put forward the idea of the shady heritage mm -hmm. rather than the modern her heritage. By shady heritage, I mean the heritage that you don't really know. 
you know, varies the, the place of this heritage in the society. Exactly as you mentioned, it should be celebrated or it should be put down or it should go to the museum. I think the narratives that you, you choose about this heritage, it really matters. And also, it's really interesting because we had the same discussion with colleague uh, last week in Niaz in Amsterdam. Should we keep this shady heritage? Should we try to narrate them within the line of the society? Or should we just just hide them or just put them away? Mm -hmm. There are different uh, decisions that you can have for this heritage. But at the same time, you know, it's important to know that this history and also narrating about this history, it's really quite helpful for the future generation to be able to understand and digest what really happens in the past. It's a very open question for the people in academia and for the policymakers that what exactly should be done with this heritage. I would prefer to include the different voices and to invite the activists, to invite the people that try to talk about the other side of the history, you know, to reflect more, even have uh, art installation beside them to acknowledge what happens in the past, not to just have a one narration about the past, including the different narrations about what happened, what really happened. Thank you for asking that. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, narrativizing as a method is something that I reflect on continuously in my work. And it is one of the main pillars of this podcast as well, as it revolves around looking at practices of inclusion and exclusion. And I want to bring up the counter narrative you gave on societies in which Islam is the official religion. Can you elaborate a bit on this? So, you know, there was a long tradition in academia that they label these cities as the Islamic cities. I really don't like this definition because I think there are multiple factors that are strongly influence the usage of spaces in this city and labeling them as the kind of Islamic cities. It's not very useful to define and to analyze what's happening really in this society. At the same time, I think that these religious studies and this Islamic thought can be considered as the starting point, as the very important element that distinguish these societies from the Western counterparts. For example, in the case of KL, there are different religions that are present in their urban space, like the Christians, the Hindus, the Buddhists, and the followers of the other religions that influence the way places in Kuala Lumpur are, are used. I think uh, this Islamic thought give us a chance to discuss the possibilities of a different non-Christian, non-liberal, post-enlightenment and non-Western discourse on urban space, especially when we try to talk about the dichotomy of public and private. What are the tensions between the public and the private that you're interested in scrutinizing within geographies where religion contributes to shaping the public interactions? I think the Islamic discussion around the issue of the private and the public ownership is very different from that of we have in the Western discourse. I think that the Islamic discourse on private-public distinctions is rooted in economic and environmental values than in politics. At the same time, the Western public sphere is only possible because there is a void between the private and also between the public spheres. And in the Western notion of the public spheres, it says that public space is directly related to the concept of the void. You can find that concept in different theoretical framework. I think using the phrase of the void or empty place uh, implies the existence of a particular perception of space that is informed by the impossibility of occupying the empty 
place the mainstream, especially the liberal discourses that present in Western urban studies, mainly accept either a binary, as we told the private and the public, or the triangular, like the political, public, and private set of coordinates in the Western discourse on public space. But I would like to argue that the notion of visibility and the public-private in the Islamic doctrine and Islamic discourse is quite different. It's about the omnipresence of God everywhere that goes beyond the public and private. And also the notion of visibility is radically different. It radically have a very different agency when it's related the domain of culture, like, like the materiality of culture, like the dress code, like even about the urban aesthetics in the public space. Asma, thank you so much for making the time and space to be here. Thank you, Bosho, for inviting me to your podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Looking forward to the next episodes. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can write to me on Instagram and Twitter or at Bushra at impraisethemarjan.com. You can find more information in the description box. Stay tuned and see you next time.